0: Welcome to M-Psych, a podcast created by Vituity, a physician-owned and led partnership where we discuss critical topics within the emerging field of emergency psychiatry. My name is Neil Christopher. I'm your host. I'm board certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine. And in this podcast, we hope to uh, attract listeners that are interested, uh, whether they're providers, nurses, social workers, medical students, or psychologists that work at that intersection of psychiatric emergencies or mental health care in emergency and crisis settings. Today, our guest is Dr. Scott Zeller. He's done a lot of work in this area, and um, he's won some awards in this area. And so I'm going to give him a moment to introduce himself.
1: Oh, well, that's kind of you. Hi, uh, Scott Zeller, MD, emergency psychiatrist by trade. I've been doing emergency psychiatry for about 35 years now, trained at uh, UCSF after uh, medical school at Northwestern. For 20 years, I was the chief of emergency psychiatric services for Alameda County, California, which is Oakland and Berkeley, for the unfamiliar. Uh, and then came to Vituity in 2015, uh, and have been working to uh, help improve psychiatric emergency care uh, at hospitals around the country since that time. And you were kind enough to mention. Uh, I guess since you brought it up, I can say. I got uh, the National Council for Behavioral Health, maybe the USA Doctor of the Year in 2015. Uh, It was California Hospital Association has won, given me several things, and got some awards in uh, mental health. uh, Oh, actually, uh, medical uh, design because I've been doing a lot of work with architects on improving emergency care design so that they're more healing and therapeutic for psychiatric emergency care. So that's enough.
0: Very good. And that's exactly what we want to talk today about is this uh, one of your designs, which is called Empath, Emergency Psychiatric Assessment, Treatment, and Healing Units. Before we get all the way into that and why you won some of these awards, what is your favorite kind of patient?
1: Uh, I have had a a passion for working with people with schizophrenia since uh, my earliest time in it. I had the unfortunate situation that uh that three of my best friends in high school developed schizophrenia um during their late teens early 20s and it was uh, an earth mover for me when that happened and and it really uh, kind of drove why i ended up going into psychiatry and um i think that it's such a difficult disease that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy and and i think people don't really understand what it's like to have schizophrenia unless you've really worked with a lot of patients with it and, and any way that you can bring a little positivity and joy to their life, which is, is unfortunately often not filled with much of that um, is something that I, I really relish being able to do, whether it's on an emergency or a one to one care. And so that I would have to say that that's that's the kind of folks I like to work with the most in. In emergency psychiatry, you do work with them a lot, and, and sometimes when they're having the worst day of their lives. So if I can make that day a little better, end up in a different way, uh, I feel like I've really contributed in a positive way to their lives.
0: Yeah, and I suspect that uh, knowing that sometimes patient with schizophrenia that is in a crisis that goes into an ED, seeing the kind of care that they sometimes get if it's you know the usual care not perhaps a good standard is, is probably a motivating factor for why you did some of what you did.
1: Yeah. If you, if I could even elaborate on what you just
0: said, Neil, it's, uh, you
1: know, a lot of times if you're already fortunate enough to have a, uh, a psychiatrist and you're having a psychiatric emergency, let's say if you call up your psychiatrist, uh, many times, maybe you're going to get, or your case manager, you're going to get a voicemail that says, if you're having a psychiatric emergency, hang up and dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And, for are those people maybe they've been there before and they could say wow you know the last time i went to you know, you call 911 they're going to bring you to the emergency department most times right? right but if they they might think well the last time i went to the emergency department i told them i was hearing voices telling me to do bad things before i knew it there was a bunch of big people who grabbed me slammed me down put me in restraints pulled my pants down injected me with sedatives i woke up the next day at a hospital 100 miles away gee should i do that again and if that's the way they're thinking about it, maybe if we change that dynamic, maybe we're going to have better outcomes, and maybe uh, be able to work with folks better in the future, and we'll have we'll be able to do things voluntarily as opposed to involving police, EMS, uh, and should just change things. And that's something that's driven a lot of our work.
0: Well, so let's get into it then. These units that ultimately came to be called empath units, um, you created them to handle. Um, psychiatric crises in the early stage in order to really determine if they need inpatient hospitalization and and to start care earlier. But, uh, you know, some people don't understand the crisis of inpatient psychiatric beds and treatment. So could you just explain quickly the crisis and maybe what caused it?
1: Sure, absolutely. So kind of along the lines of what I was just describing, if you're having kind of a psychiatric emergency, a psychiatric crisis where you might be hallucinating, you might be suicidal, you might be feeling like you're having compelling auditory hallucinations telling you to bad things, maybe a bad intoxication that's making you despondent. There's all kinds of things that can be leading to a crisis like that. And you know, historically, if you do end up in a medical ER, uh, they've seen their role as let's medically clear you and refer you to an inpatient hospital. And maybe that worked when a tiny percentage of their patients were psychiatric emergency patients. But those numbers have just risen dramatically in the last couple of decades to the point that they're one out of every seven patients seen in ERs in the U.S. right now are there for a behavioral health emergency. And if they're only going to be doing medical clearance and referring out and with a limited number of inpatient beds, that means those the math doesn't work. And you're going to be referring a lot of people for care and with a limited number of beds. And so um, a lot of those people are going to be waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's led to this phenomenon, known as boarding, where people are sitting untreated in ERs, sometimes for long hours, sometimes even for days, waiting for that elusive inpatient bed to open up. And when that uh, that, that happens, they're often not getting any sort of treatment. And it's a very uh, difficult situation. Our patients' symptoms often get worse. The ER is an uncomfortable and claustrophobic and kind of scary environment for people in a behavioral health crisis. Loud noises and uniformed personnel running around. People saying "Don't move" or, or "I'm calling security" and all this. And so, so their symptoms get worse. And it's just it's not a good situation. And one of the things about it that's also unfortunate is that psychiatric emergencies are really the only medical emergency and and mtala recognizes psychiatric emergencies as medical emergencies they're the only medical emergency seen in the ed that our default treatment is let's find them an inpatient bed if you came into the ed with an asthma attack they're not going to take you to the back and say let's let's find you an asthma hospital they're going to put you on a nebulizer let's say but we're not doing that Mm -hmm. treatment uh with the same uh consistency with the psych patients and what we've actually found with all of our work is that if you initiate treatment you're going to find that far fewer of those patients do need inpatient and that's one of the ways that we can start working on decreasing that bad math about just referring everybody to inpatient can we make people better at that emergency level of care you know if you look at the numbers of patients who are getting to er's with chest pain Uh, You know, if we admitted everybody who came to the hospital with chest pain and to the ER with chest pain, right now we'd be talking about a nationwide shortage of med surge beds. But they only admit fifteen to twenty percent, and we find that actually, if you initiate treatment and get people in a more therapeutic environment like Empath that we're going to be talking about, that actually similar numbers of people can actually get better and go home in less than a day. And and if we can do that, that changes that dynamic, and then that saves those elusive inpatient beds for those people who truly don't have an alternative and the people who we can get better let's get them plugged back into the outpatient world
0: exactly and it it really is to say it out loud it it doesn't even make sense anymore you say okay well a neurological emergency that has a time clock in the ED a cardiac emergency that has a time clock in the ED and 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 the EDs can be penalized for not reaching certain goals they could lose accreditation but, a, but a, you know, a psychiatric emergency, it, it has been historically uh, different because they say, oh, you know, it's not a medical emergency, and they just wait. And in the case of adolescence, it can be four to seven days in some places. So you developed this model um, as medical director in Alameda County. Uh, you did a study. And uh, so what, did, did the study come first? Did the idea come first?
1: Uh, It was kind of a combination of the two. So uh, about 10 years ago or so, I started hearing all of this uh, media attention being paid to the boarding phenomenon that we were just talking about. And all the quote unquote experts they were talking to kept throwing up their hands and saying, well, you know, we're holding all these people for inpatient beds and there's not enough inpatient beds. So the solution is we need to build more inpatient hospitals. And and I would hear that and I go, I would get frustrated because I worked in emergency psychiatry and say, no, that's not the answer. That's only perpetuating and kicking the can farther down the road. And I don't think they're going to be building that many more hospitals anyway. And what really needs to be done is, is more needs to be, there needs to be better interventions at that emergency level of care for behavioral health emergencies. And so I knew that what we were doing in Alameda County, we had a very busy psychiatric ER. It was a traditional psychiatric ER, which was not the most welcoming or therapeutic environment, but we were getting good results with what we were doing. And uh, we had, uh, fortunately at the time, an administration that encouraged us to make it into a more welcoming and therapeutic environments. And we found that every time we did that, that we were reducing um, the episodes of agitation, aggression, violence, the reducing the need for restraints, reducing the need for forcible medications. And started thinking, gee, if I could build a, a unit That incorporated all this and actually was designed with all these ideas in mind and not trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear like what we have here. Maybe we could do something really great, but you know what? Nobody's going to listen to me unless I have some good data that I can um, demonstrate that that just the idea of emergency psychiatry really works because nobody had ever really said like, what's your numbers and how you're able to divert? And we, we kind of had a great situation in that there was a number of hospitals that were transferring us every one of their involuntary psychiatric holds in the county. And so if we didn't exist, all those people would be sitting in their ERs waiting for transfer to inpatient, 100%. By the very definition, it would have no alternative but go to an inpatient facility, because that was the way way they were set up. So we knew that if they were going to come to us, we could study those uh, aggregate numbers and say. Since they're coming to us, what are we able to do? Are we able to divert them from inpatient? What percentages are we able to do that? Also, since we exist as a place where an ER can move psychiatric emergency patients to, what does that do to boarding? How does that compare to the California uh, average boarding times? And so we were able to engage the those EDs that, that did that and, and uh, did a 30-day study and found that uh, not only were we able to discharge 76% of those patients that we saw in less than 24 hours, and uh, you know, we were also able to minimize that boarding time so that the average length of time once a person was considered to be medically stable until the time they left that ER to move to our psychiatric emergency program ended up being far less than two hours. And so wow. those were both things that were so different than what everybody everybody else in emergency medicine was dealing with around the country that when we published that in an emergency medicine journal, a lot of people were like, "Wow, this is so different than what we ever considered before." Let's start making ideas around uh, emergency psychiatry, and, I, and that was uh, uh, I got some support from that. That's when Vituity started uh, talking with me about what can we do together, and. It it led to some opportunities from hospitals saying like, hey, what could you do here if we gave you a blank slate? And then I was like, great, let's let's create the ideal design where it's a therapeutic environment where people feel safe, comfortable. We've had examples of like living rooms and crisis stabilization units. and We know what we can do with that. It doesn't have to be just for the the mild to moderate population. I bet high acuity people can do well in those locations as well. And so, then we were able to fortunate enough to get some support and start building units, and uh, and the, the 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 results have just been unbelievable and phenomenal. In that empath units that have now been created have good peer reviewed, documented, published studies in major journals showing just phenomenal metrics and outcomes, and, and it's been really a game changer. And it's exciting to see how the uh, the concept is spreading all across not just the U.S., but Canada and even some other countries are, are picking up on it now as well.
0: Yeah, and your, your study was 2014, Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. We'll have links uh, in the show notes for that. Uh, and as you said, a number of other studies kind of confirming your results in other settings and other uh, companies and organizations also emulating this this uh, idea with the different names. You said crisis stabilization units. My first contract um, that, that I got as a separate while a resident was um, a crisis residential unit where sometimes they go instead of a hospital after the first 24 hours. And um, I was very privileged to work in that environment, keeping patients either out of the hospital, you know, from going in or subacutely just discharged and able to keep them stable and from going back into the hospital. Did a number of clozapine titrations, even um, even had a couple patients receiving um continuation ECT and keeping them from going back into the hospital. So so this is it's it's working. Other places were starting to do it. It was catching on. It kind of led to uh, an additional career path uh, for you. Outside of the providers, like what else happens other than is it just go to the hospital or go home? Or are there social workers that are able to get them outpatient appointments, residential rehab, mental health rehab? What can happen in these units?
1: Great question. And, and, uh, you know, one of the things that that, uh, we often say in emergency psychiatry is that our goal is to turn an emergency patient into an outpatient. And that means our our job clearly is not done until we've really plugged people into a really good aftercare plan. In fact, if somebody's going to come to the, you know, you you hear a lot when you you talk with people, uh, you know, thought leaders and stakeholders around the country, a lot of them are too many people go to the ER, and we need to find a way to prevent them from going there. And my feeling is, you know, if they're gonna they're gonna come to the ER anyway, and you know, the best way we can do things is do such a great job with them when they do come to the ER that they don't get into crisis again and they don't have to come back. That's how we're gonna actually reduce the numbers, and that means doing a good job to stabilizing them at an empath level, but then have a really solid discharge plan. Maybe that is to a crisis residential like you described. Those are wonderful programs. That's a great step down from an empath if we can get somebody in a crisis residential who's at maybe that kind of uh, you know, fragile level, if you will. Yeah. But also, uh, let's get a really solid follow-up appointment as quickly as possible. Let's, let's mm-hmm. not you lose what we've just achieved. Let's make sure we're maintaining the stability. Let's make sure when it's uh, an issue that that we're helping with housing, that we're getting um, the outpatient providers, um, you know, informed about everything that happened with their visit with us, and if they don't have an inpatient provider, let's get them set up with one. All those are, are parts of our whole discharge process. So when we think of the twenty-four hour clock of somebody going into empath, there's a couple of things that are different than than what is done traditionally in other settings. One is is that you know, usually when you get an assessment and you're in an emergency behavioral health condition, your assessment is usually, are you somebody who needs to go to inpatient or can you go home now? And you, it's like a snapshot and it's it's thumbs up or thumbs down. And what we do to change that is we have somebody who comes into path scene within an hour or so after arrival by a psychiatrist. And rather than say, here's where your disposition is in that first hour, we say, let's start this treatment plan. And, you know, unless it's somebody who's obviously can go home right at that that first interview. But for the majority of patients, they're going to be high acuity. And we're going to say, let's start this treatment plan and let's see how you respond to it. And maybe that involves meds. Maybe that involves other modalities that we're going to use. But We're going to start you on that, and then we're going to see how you're doing 8, 10, 12 hours later and do a really thorough reassessment. And at that point, that's when we're going to decide on what our plan disposition is. That leaves us another 10, 12, 14 hours to either make those referrals to inpatient or really get everybody on board, the social workers, the case managers, our our community uh, coordinators, to work together to really find a solid aftercare plan. To get our collateral people involved if there's family members or board and care operators, that we want to get them involved in saying like, can you come pick them up? Here's what the plan is. We're going to make sure they have this meds. They've got an appointment for tomorrow. Uh, if you need, we can have the mobile crisis team come by and check on you in a couple of days. All these kind of things to really have this solid plan. And what's amazing, and, and one of the studies that you mentioned from uh, academic emergency medicine of the University of Iowa's program uh, showed that people were far more likely to show up at their first outpatient appointment after empath than they were even after they were discharged from inpatient. And that they because dropped the recidivism from ER by over 30%.
0: Because that interaction with the provider, with the, with the care team was so much better than what they were typically getting. I can only imagine that they're, they're now willing to, they feel like they've been helped and they're, they're willing to pursue the next level of care.
1: Exactly and they're not just being handed a pamphlet and say call somebody on this list yeah, which is unfortunately what's just too common right
0: yeah yeah and and of course uh, manic and, and psychotic patients very easily are able to uh, call and, and and connect to a, a phone right. number yeah.
1: And go through a phone tree on a <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah and yeah wait for twenty minutes, um, so you know it's 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 working and, and there's a lot of services that are available and and we had better results but from the patient's perspective like what do you think what did they, what would a patient say is the difference in walking into an empath unit versus walking into a traditional ED?
1: So I think one of the things that that has been most uh, you know really wonderful about working with empaths was getting together with some amazing architect people who are really interested in the healthcare world and saying, how can we make this therapeutic environment that's very welcoming and and soothing and, and a positive place for people to go to? Because as we described, the ED environment may be kind of counteractive to uh, a wellness and recovery, let's say. Uh, so we, we want it to be a spacious environment that maybe there's high ceilings. Hopefully there's windows with natural light coming in. There's soothing colors on the wall. There's maybe nature murals. And there's room to move about. And we know that some of our folks, when they are in a manic episode or having acute psychosis, that maybe pacing helps them to calm down. You certainly can't pace around a traditional ED. But if there's room in an empath unit. For people to move about as they will. And if you wanna pace around, if you even want to walk in a circle, that's fine. Nobody's gonna tell you you can't. They have often they have yoga mats if you wanna do that. Some of them have outdoor areas for like meditation and mindfulness. And, and so the, the 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 basic idea of the design of Empath Unit is one large central room where rather than people being put into gurneys or beds or individual rooms, everybody's in a kind of a group camp out where they pick their own recliner. Um, and then that recliner is not their only space, but there's other areas where they can sit at a table and they can, rather than beg nursing staff for something to eat, they can go and serve themselves uh, a snack or get a beverage or they can get their own linens. They never have to feel one down to the staff or try to yell at them through the bulletproof fishbowl where the nursing station is. In fact, the nurses are interspersed and it's an open nursing station. Everybody's under a gentle, direct observation so that there's never a feeling like, you 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 can't interact with the staff or they're somewhere else, uh, which we found often leads to agitation and aggression if you can't get their attention. Um, yeah. But instead, that everybody's there and intermingled, and sometimes the staff might go and sit with you at a table and play a board game with you or dominoes. Or if you are you know want to move around besides where your recliner is, you can go and watch TV or you can sit and read a book or you can sit at one of those dining tables and get into a game of cards or, or dominoes. And, and as we know, when we even play cards with our friends, the playing cards isn't the important part. The important part is like having a good chance to hang out with our friends and chat and catch up and have fun. And the cards are kind of a nice distraction so that you can have that conversation. The same thing works in an empath unit where maybe you're playing dominoes and, and you have kind of focus on the game, but it's a little easier to talk about your current situation, what's going on, and, and so you get a really kind of nice milieu therapy out of that, and and we find all these things kind of work together to dramatically reduce aggression, agitation, um, hostility. That patients um, are just much calmer than you would ever imagine, especially for people who are all on high acuity involuntary psych holds. Um, the, the one thing we often hear from people when they initially hear about the empath design is, you've got all these people who are on danger, self-danger, other psych holds in a room together. And aren't they tearing each other sh- to shreds? Aren't, isn't it like the noisiest place you've ever been in your life? And it only takes a, a, a few minutes of being in one for people to go, my gosh, this is the calmest, most mellow place I've ever been. You could hear a pin drop in here. There's something magic about this all. And the, the magic didn't come from me, that's for sure. It's just something about the environment when everybody's kind of Focused on making this a positive outcome. And, and I can't tell you how many old hand psychiatrists were just in disbelief until they actually saw the space and then they couldn't take their jaw off the floor.
0: Yeah. And I was going to ask that, like, is that is that the active ingredient? Is that the mechanism of change? Is it is it the environment is just that different?
1: Yeah, I really think it is. And I think it's not just the 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 physical design of the environment, but the idea that everybody's in there together and there's a lot of support and and involvement. And, you know, for example, let's say there's still psychiatrists out there, and I know that you know this, where there's a series of just small locked rooms across the corridor with a narrow window in them where you look in. And if you talk to somebody who's never really experienced anything in emergency psychiatry, they might say, well, if I went in this, I would want a private room to myself. And maybe they're thinking of a luxurious room that they would be in at a hospital if they broke their leg or something like that.
0: Yeah, But that's not
1: really what emergency psychiatry rooms are. They're like little cells, unfortunately. Yeah. We've seen that too often. Um, and, and let's say you did have that private room. And let's say you're really suicidal and you don't want to take another breath and you just want to be dead. And the most horrible day of your life. And you get checked into that room and you go and lie in the mattress and look up at the ceiling. And what's changed? You know, the world still hates you. Everything's awful. You're looking at a bare ceiling it's, and nothing's going to change as you're doing that. But let's say you go in an empath unit and you're sitting there and maybe you go up and start talking to a peer support specialist or another staff member, or maybe you make friends with another patient. Suddenly the world's not such a bad place. And you start moving in a more positive direction. Flip, like we were talking about people with psychosis, paranoid psychosis, you go in that room. You hear anybody outside, are they plotting against you? Are they laughing about you and making fun of you? Did you know something that I found working in, in design on these units that when they've made hospital like seclusion rooms for psych patients or those traditional small emergency psych rooms, they were made so that they couldn't be longer than nine feet in any direction from the door. Do you know why that was?
0: No, I don't. I don't
1: know. It was because... That was the amount of space they felt they couldn't get a running start to attack the person who opened the door.
0: Yeah, To okay, to move, okay. Right, so if we're even
1: thinking that way, which is like annoying to me that that's even a concept. If a person's behind that locked door and they're hearing people outside and they are thinking that there's danger or uh, adversaries on the other side of that door because they're not knowing what's going on outside there. And so it's so much so that you can't give them a running start. Maybe we need to change that design, right? And maybe if you're in an open room, everybody in front of you, you know what's going on. You know they're not making fun of you. You know they're not talking about you because they're right there. And you can ask what's going on. What a difference that is. And so we find that people who might better, they just feel safer, calmer, and more willing to interact and engage. And that leads to less need for coercion, more involuntary engagement treatment, and even willingness to take suggestions on things like medications.
0: So much of the design, um, and I haven't done much in this, but I, I've seen some some bad examples, unfortunately, and 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 I've gotten a chance in the last uh, two or three years to see some good examples. But uh, you know, one hospital in the area uh, was on the second floor, and so you know, no ligatures are, are you know are allowed, and so you know, no no little things hanging out anywhere where someone could possibly hang themselves or whatever. So they had a few trees that were left in this courtyard. Well, they had to get rid of those. And so now the courtyard is, there's nothing green. There's nothing alive. It's just a concrete rectangle. And I just can't imagine that that environment uh, is calming or life-giving in any, in any way. Um, the, the other thing I was thinking about, too, as you go into this environment, and I just think you're waiting for treatment. You now have been waiting for hours in your distress, and at some point you get hungry. And how many people have I seen have to have, or you find out later, were given restraints and emergency medications just because they couldn't get somebody's attention to give them some food. And I I just imagine that this kind of environment, I think they can just walk up and, and ask for snacks at any time.
1: They don't even have to ask. They can serve themselves. There's a snack station. Nobody, you know, what's the other thing funny about that is, is that when we first proposed that, there were staff who said, well, oh, you can't do that. People are going to make a mess. And, and we said like, okay, well, how, would you rather they make a mess of the, the, the cracker and cookie pile or a mess of somebody's face? You know, that's a big difference. And you know what? Once they went out, there weren't any messes. It's always just projection of this idea that you can't trust these people. No, they're going to be fine. And they don't need to beg you for a cookie. You know, what is that? That that puts people one down. Whenever you do that, that's the kind of things, like you said, exactly. Lead to agitation and aggression and feeling like they're they're being thought of as unworthy and it starts to make people frustrated and angry. And then you get bad outcomes. Because you're absolutely right. The more we looked at the reasons people got agitated and aggressive, and that's been a lot of my other research outside of uh, empath type work, it, it was of all those things that were were things that provoked it. And so there was another thing that we, we started doing with Empath early on, which was the whole phone situation. Think about how many psych units we've seen that has that one phone that's attached to the wall on like this metal cord. And there's usually two or three people waiting to get on the phone. And the other person on, who's on the phone is like, back off. i am I got a private conversation here. And other people are like, you've been on too long. Give me that phone. How many fist bites did we see over the dumb phone? So we found out that, hey, you know what? You can go to, at the time there was Radio Shack. You go to Radio Shack, you buy these walk-around phones for like eight bucks. And how about if we just gave people that and and they could go to a private place in the corner or wherever they want and talk on the phone. And there's enough phones for everybody. And people would say, oh, you can't give those to those patients. They'll smash them. And so we said, okay, we'll tell you what, like they're eight bucks a piece. Let's put in the budget that one of them is going to get smashed every month. And we've got a replacement for it. Well, at the end of the year, we still had every phone intact, and none of them had been smashed. Uh, but there had been like a drop in the number of restraints, the number of assaults, all these other things, and it was all just by by uh, giving people something that you would just take for granted, and they didn't have to be one down, they didn't have to beg for it, and just treated them with some humanity, and you got great outcomes as a result.
0: These units are often in a separate location than the medical emergency department. So how is transportation working from, you know, one place to another? Uh, are there any challenges with that?
1: Yeah, there can be. So so what's really interesting is that there's a national uh, standards organization called the FGI, which is the Facility Guidelines Institute, and they publish quadrennial guidelines on all aspects of Healthcare uh, design, licensing, construction. The 2022 guidelines came out early this year, and they were uh, for the first time they included a whole section on behavioral health crisis units with a big focus on empath model. And they, you know, one of the things that they had um, you know really been looking at was where should these units be located. And it says, ideally, they're either kind of within the ED footprint or or immediately accessible. So that's a best case scenario. But when a hospital is saying like, hey, let's build this, and they've already got an existing hospital footprint, maybe that's not possible. So maybe it's you take an elevator. Or in, in a couple cases we know of, they built a modular unit next to the ambulance bay going into the ED. So it's still close to the ED. But sometimes it might be that it's another part of the campus where it may even re- require a, um, a an ambuvan ride or or something like that. So best case scenario um, is you open a door from the ED and you walk into the empath unit. That's University of Minnesota, Grand Rapids, Michigan, for example, have that kind of design. Uh, another one is you can put somebody, uh, you know, you can walk them down the hall and that's where the empath is or or, or across the sidewalk um, like, like that. But if you have to, your only choice is to transport, um, you know, a quarter mile, a half mile away. Then it's going to be an ambulance, and and some of the problems that arise with that it makes it a little more difficult to get through your state licensing if you got that set, that much of a separation. Makes some of the reimbursement uh, models more difficult because they say it's not really an observation unit now because you left the ED that far. And then also it's expensive to do that kind of transportation unless you happen to own a fleet of vans and have drivers at the ready for whenever you're doing things. So it's not the best solution when you build them a little bit farther away. But sometimes that's really what the hospital leadership wants. And that's where they have the uh, the, the wherewithal and the ability to put them. So, and, you know, you, you you make do with what you've got. And some of those units have turned out terrifically. There's one in Los Angeles where. They're about three blocks away from their ED, and it's a gorgeous unit, and uh, all the patients have to be transferred there, either they're from their affiliated ED or they're taking transfers from 11 other hospitals in the Los Angeles Basin. And so it's been working out wonderfully, But it's, and maybe it's because now everybody arrives by transport. that uh, they, they focus on uh, the intake process, meeting that delivery, if you will, at the door. Um, you know, having a really good triage nurse, intake nurse, having that doc see them as quickly as possible, and, and making sure that they're mitigating any kind of medical concerns, which is always something you need to rule out. And we need to make sure that this isn't a medical mimic of a psychiatric condition. These are really psychiatric behavioral health emergencies, not not somebody who is post ictal, let's say, or had head trauma.
0: Yes, and or, no. and one uh, coming up on a, a future episode, we are going to talk about. Um, Medically clearing patients and some improvements and best practices there, along with some other topics that we'll cover at the end. Um, any differences um, it, from one state to another? Have you have you noticed any major differences um, as is it implemented in different areas of the country?
1: Yeah, um, I mean every state has its own different idiosyncratic laws and ideas. Let's say. Uh, and it can even break down to every county within a state and be different. We've come out with a saying that when you've seen one empath unit, you've seen one. And it's mostly a reflection of of how different every region, location, state is. And so you have to try to adapt to each, each part of it. Some places, uh, you know, right now, uh, a state where um, there really has some exciting new empath units being developed is the state of Virginia. And Virginia is a very unusual state because it works on um, a model where somebody has to go and see a judge within a certain amount of time to get an order for an involuntarily cycle. And then as opposed to, say, California, where we have 72 hours on that initial involuntary hold, in Virginia it's eight hours. And in Virginia, the police have to sit with them for that entire eight hours until a decision is made by a magistrate if they need to go to a psychiatric hospital. And wow, what a what a what a what a setup, right? It's there's been some bad outcomes because eight hours elapsed and they weren't able to do X or Y. And so they had to let somebody go, and then there was a really bad outcome. So there's actually a willingness within the state legislature, and they're working on some legislation right now to Envelop empath models into kind of their state ideas that going to empath would be similar to going to an inpatient unit. So instead of having it be an eight hour, it becomes a seventy two hour, and uh, and that's going to be a game changer for them. So that's just an example of how in some states when they uh, they realize that there's not just the world of ER and inpatient, but there can be this psychiatric emergency idea, there can be empath, there can be other models of emergency psychiatry care, that it's much better for the patient, it's much better for the system, and it's much more appropriate and judicious use of your resources when you're actually, you know, trying to do something up front than actually just send everybody to the one place and figure it out after they're all there. Um, but we've seen changes in state law in places like Kentucky, in Oregon. In Michigan, Uh, you know, like I said, they're they're working on it in Virginia right now. as just the ones that immediately come to mind that hey, these things the old way didn't work, and here's a model that can work if we tweak the laws a little bit. And so that's that's really what has been something that's been very gratifying when the the, you know policymakers and, and legislators in the state recognize what they can do differently to make things better. But that being said. I just was able to mention four or five states. There's a lot of other states out there that are pretty hard and fast. This is how we do things, and it can't ever change, because how could it change? Because that's how we do things.
0: Right. Sometimes it's not changing the law directly. I think here in California, it wasn't so much changing the law as custom implementation in each county, but you did – Maybe indirectly, but uh, there was a change in the way we can bill for a crisis unit, even here in the state, or for a crisis encounter. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's actually interesting in, in that is that there's long been a great way to reimburse crisis care in California. Uh, and it's a crisis stabilization code that's in Medicaid in California, what we call Medi-Cal, um, that, that actually has a, a well-defined uh, that there can be two kinds of crisis stabilization, one that's done in the community, which is called crisis stabilization-UC, or urgent care, or if it's done in a hospital, crisis stabilization-ER. So that was actually a way to reimburse the classic PS programs that have existed in California, going back to when I was a, a newbie. Um, but not that many people knew about it. In fact, if you look at it, just about any state's code, that 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 billing code for crisis stabilization is in there, but they've okay. never activated it or funded it. So it's actually like a well-known concept. But even where I was in Alameda County, we actually had to go to the county and say, hey, you know what? Here's a great way for you to reimburse us. And it's an hourly reimbursement rather than cost basis or trying to give us a per diem or, or just a lump sum. Why not you pay us for the work we do? And that will actually reward us when we do a great job. And, and, you know, pay us by the hour, but there's a cap on the number of hours that you can get paid for, which caps out in California 20 hours. So that encourages us not to dilly-dally, to get to see patients right away, initiate that treatment right away. Because, our uh, you know, our, our, the people who are holding the purse strings at our hospital are saying, like, you know, you, uh, after 20 hours goes past, we're losing money. So do the best you can to get people uh, fixed and better and moving along in, in you know, 20 hours or so. And, and so uh, I, I, when I hear that, I'm a, a great because I know that the great majority of psychiatric emergencies can be stabilized in less than 24 hours. And if I've got a 20-hour target, nobody's going to be mad if it's 22 hours. You know, we're still getting a reimbursement. They'll be mad right. if it's 48 hours or 72 hours if you're only getting 20, Right. So, but that makes us really focus and change our mindset to doing things by the minute and the hour rather than by the day or the week. And when we we ha- we change that mindset and, and do things emergently, like what they we our medical counterparts do in the medical ER, that that's when we get the real bang for the buck. And you know, when when you think of the way that we've done things, when we talk about somebody boarding for for hours or days, and then they finally get that inpatient admission. And maybe they get that acceptance at four in the afternoon, and then they get transported there, and they arrive there at like nine o'clock at night. You know that the the nurse is going to get a PRN uh, admission orders for that person from the doc on call, and then that patient's not even going to be seen for the first time by their psychiatrist till maybe the late morning or afternoon the next day. You've just lost. 24, 36 hours of care for that person. So when people say, how can empath work so much faster? Right. Well, we just eliminated all those delays. We're having somebody seen in the first hour and started on treatment rather than two days from now. And that's that's why we're going to see things so much better on that. We, we, we just changed that mindset into minutes rather than hours and hours rather than days.
0: Obviously, patient care is way more important than the money. But th- there was a study uh, that I looked at where it was showing that in some ways the revenue may go down for an emergency department that partners with uh, an empath unit in the sense of, you know, these they're they're not getting their hourly rate and so uh, you know these patients are leaving so now they got empty beds, and 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 it may take a, you know a year or two if if you're spending you know capital funds to uh, build a new type of unit with nicer chairs and chairs that turn into beds and stuff like that. So what are the, uh, what are the economic risks? What are you, what are you seeing, um, in terms of the successful models?
1: So there's, there's some neat things that, that are showing some really positive economic returns. Um, and there's a difficulty in expressing that because, uh, you know, hospital C-suites most often look at different departments as different buckets. And so, there's a great study of that same uh, University of Iowa uh, where it's just an economic evaluation, and it showed that the ER, not just looking completely away from the empath unit, but the, the ER, by creating an empath unit, added almost a million dollars to their bottom line in the first year by moving these patients out of boarding into better and more appropriate and more prompt care in empath. And by doing that, able to open up those beds for non-psychiatric emergency patients not having to have as many sitters, not having to have as much of a security presence, being able to decrease the number of left without being seen patients who got frustrated long waits and said, screw this and left. So by doing all that, they've made almost an extra million dollars. But of course, does that get attributed to the back. psych program? No, it's like, hey, good job, ER. Right, um, so, so then maybe people are looking at the psych program saying, wow, well, you lost almost a million dollars. It's like, hey, if you look at it all in the big scheme of things, it's a wash uh, right. but people don't often look at things that way so yeah I you, what you're saying is is upfront I mean there's going to be startup costs there's going to be uh you know that, that that time where you're working up towards that optimal uh you know operation where where you're actually clicking along and, and making your, your your ends meet we we always you know encourage people to think of empath as yeah. this is never going to be a profit center and it shouldn't be thought of that way. It's like, this is part of your mission. You should be doing better deal for these patients, but right. there's no reason you can't make it break even. And as long as we can make it break even, then I think everybody can be really happy about it. And you can look at the benefits of the other parts of the system. In fact, that the, the patients you're admitting to inpatient now are going to be vetted and you're not going to get any admission denials because we're going to have proven that if this person goes to inpatients because they really need it and we couldn't find any alternative, and they couldn't be stabilized quickly otherwise. Um, that. But all that being said, it usually means that it, you're going to need some kind of initial startup funding with an idea that that first year or two, it's going to cost some money to create it, and you're not going to be getting it back all that quickly. And as they're sorting through all those reimbursement models, which more and great ones are coming out. In fact, there's a new bill going through the U.S. Congress that's going to have Medicare reimbursement for hospital-based crisis units. And, and that's really exciting. Hopefully that stays in the bill as it moves forward. Um, but there's um, there's a couple different ways that hospitals, well, let's even say three ways. One, sometimes a hospital is just like, you know what, we love this idea. We're gonna allocate funds for its yeah. creation. We're great guys. Not as common, but that there, there have been those. Um, the next one is there's the philanthropy community. And at a time when everybody knows how much crisis has been out there, it's, a, it's in the newspapers every day. It's a well-known thing. For those people who are looking to really make an impact and, and have sizable funds that they want to donate, uh, to donating money towards creating something like Empath is a real feel-good donation. And maybe you can even get your name on the naming rights, and it can be the, 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 the Joe Smith Empath unit, which we've seen some of those. One of the hospitals in Virginia I was mentioning just got an anonymous donor who gave a million dollars specifically for them to create Empath. Uh, There's the uh, uh, Leona Helmsley. If you remember her, the kind of infamous Leona Helmsley from years ago, the the New York hotelier uh, person with this big shoe collection. Well, she's doing much, much better posthumously in that her foundation has donated millions of dollars for two different empath units to be created across the country. And there's other people applying for it. Um, And then, then the third way is can we get government grants for it? And there's been some really nice um, developments in that uh, both um, historically where where we've seen nice government grants create several uh, of these units across the country, but what's just been announced and actually is going live um, at the next week is uh, a California uh, grant that has allocated $20 million in grants in the state, specifically for hospitals to build wow. empath units by name. So if you're a hospital that has sees mental health emergency patients in your hospital, medical ER, and you want to build an empath unit, you can now apply for uh, for part of this $20 million grant program to build an empath unit um, and I think the RFA for that goes live on December 12th.
0: I mean, yeah, I guess what we need, too, is uh, CFOs and COOs that are willing to look beyond the silos and, and, and look at the big picture. And, and that would be helpful in seeing, you know, our, our, our organization is caring for patients uh, more quickly and, uh, you, you know, in a better way.
1: Yeah. And you know, one thing along those lines, the C-suite has been hearing for several years where their chief medical officer of the emergency department, where their CMO of the hospital have been talking to them relentlessly, of like, we're overwhelmed with these psych borders in the ER, and it's not good for the psych patients. It's not good for the rest of the ER. What can we do about this? And so they've been hearing that over and over and over. And then when they learn about Empath, they're like, wow, this this may be a solution and and so maybe you're right that the COO or the CFO is kind of like, well, that sounds like it's going to be cost a little money. And like, yeah, but look at how much this is going to change everything. And look at the patient satisfaction scores we see on these units around the country where you've got like 90% of the patients who go through them saying they had a great experience. And these are people who are brought in yeah. handcuffed from the back of a squad car at the beginning of their stay. And at the end of their stay, they left saying, wow, this was great. And, and what a difference that is. So and at the same time, making much, things much better in their ER, which is usually kind of the jewel of every hospital. So,
0: yeah, if you don't have to run past five uh, psych gurneys to get to your code stroke, it, your ER is working a little bit better. Um, so let's talk about some some lessons learned, some take homes. What can an inpatient psychiatrist learn from the empath bottle?
1: Uh, I think for inpatient psychiatrists, when a lot of them, uh, you know, because they have been doing inpatient and they're kind of focused on that world, they're initially saying, how can you do people in less than 24 hours? Because it takes several days for really to get on top of things. And just an explanation that we're not trying to replace what you're doing. We value what you do on inpatient. And what we're trying to do is really get the patients to you who really need inpatient. You know those people who've come to you who you're kind of like your initial evaluate, like why are they even here and they're only going to stay a day or two and they take tons and tons of paperwork. It's disruptive for the patient. it's disruptive for the staff. We're going to make sure all those people get the help they need and aren't even going to come to your facility anymore. We're going to do a great job for them. And you're used to right now getting referrals from emergency departments where you just have a quick note from an ER physician and you don't know much about what's going on with the patient beyond that. Now you're going to get a referral where you've got a comprehensive evaluation from a psychiatrist. You're going to have 10 to 20 hours of documented response to a designated treatment plan so that you're going to see, is this somebody I need to worry about? Is this somebody who's going to come in and be violent? Or do we already see what's going on? They've already started on meds. We're going to have response to that. We're going to know that they're not going to have side effects. We're going to know whether or not they need restraints. All these things are going to be happening that for those people that we have determined after empath are still going to need inpatient, you're going to get one of the best packages that you've ever seen compared to the historic referrals. And your patient's going to be able to hit the ground running because they already have their first day of treatment under their belt. So it's really a win-win for the inpatient. And on top of that, like I said, you're not going to get any more of those insurance denials. Everybody's a slam dunk admission now. So while there may be, when we first come in and start talking about this, some of the inpatient docs are apprehensive. The more they see what this means for them, I think it actually is is kind of like, you know, if you're an inpatient hospitalist on the med search floor, can you imagine if just everybody came direct referrals from the community as opposed to everybody going through the ER? You would have a pretty hodgepodge of patients on your med surge floor. This is empath is filling that role like the ER does for uh, for the the med surge patients, and that makes it better for the people who are those hospitalists.
0: And I've worked in both roles, and I can say that I've definitely felt the difference um, when I have my inpatient hat on because. You basically look at it and you go, oh, okay, this, this patient's already received you know, their first day of treatment. They weren't able to be stabilized, and so you're, you're absolutely right. It's like, they tried, it didn't work, so I need to watch them for a few more days. It also cuts down on the number of second-day discharges at hospitals that don't have these or, or where they didn't try because you have know, a number of people come by and they get a good night's sleep, they get a medication refill, they're ready to go the next morning. Well, those aren't coming into the inpatient unit if they've gone through right. an empath unit. Uh, what would you say, or what is there to learn um, You know, from a social worker or a nurse that might work in this in, in environment?
1: Yeah, that, that can often be a real um, um, struggle initially, and, and, and not limited to nurses and social workers, but just docs in general, anybody who works there. If you haven't worked in an emergency psychiatry environment before, it's really different than, let's say you're, you've are you only worked on inpatient. Let's say you're an inpatient nurse and you've only worked night shifts before. Well, often night shifts in a lot of inpatient units, the patients are all asleep. You're hanging out in the nursing station. You go around and do some checks to make sure that the you can still see people that are breathing. And that's about your job at night. And, you know, that they, they, they kind of think that's the pace. What's going to change if you work an empath is that it's just going to be like an ER. There's no clock. I mean, you're going twenty four seven. People are coming in and going out at all hours of the day, and you can't expect that there's going to be, uh, you know, a busy time of day and a slow time of day because you're you're going to be working more emergently. You're also going to have to start thinking of term things in terms of hours rather than days, and so you don't work with a, you know, you don't sit down and do a, a a team meeting on every patient who comes in and create a 72-hour psychosocial assessment. You're focused on the emergency condition. And we're trying to, like I said, train that emergency patient into an outpatient. They came in dangerous to sell for others. They're going to no longer be dangerous. We're not going to cure their disease. We're not going to fix all the world's problems, but we're going to turn that person from being in a really acute situation into subacute or stable for the community. And just trying to change that focus that we're not going to fix everything and we don't have seven to 10 days to fix everything. Get that emergency mindset. It's one reason that sometimes we find that, you know, if if we're recruiting uh, staff for, for empath, that people naturally think, well, let's get, psych the hospital nurses and some you know adapt great but others maybe the pace is a little different than they're used to and it it doesn't it's not a good match for them. Meanwhile, you might have the emergency medicine nurses who have a particular interest in working with behavioral health patients. And maybe that's the ones they've been kind of assigned to in the ER. And they work great with this population. And then they're more familiar with the pace. So Sometimes a good mix of that, of having ER nurses and, and, and inpatient psych nurses, they learn from each other, they benefit from each other's knowledge and their particular actions, and that's when you get a really thriving unit. And we've seen some places where the, uh, they, they try to put too many rules on which nurse or social worker or whoever can be there, and I'm always saying like, no, put, put in your job description that you want, uh, I mean, don't make the job description too exclusionary. Keep it open to anybody who self-selects, who wants to work in a place like this, who's interested in this population. And those should be the people that you want. You, you don't want to say like, must have two years of, of post-RN inpatient psychiatric uh, experience. No, then then you're not going to get the right people. Get people to say like, hey, you know what? I like working with these folks. I, I really feel it's exciting and gratifying to work with them. And I want to help these folks. I want that person working there. And I don't care what they're, uh, and how many years of X, Y, or Z. I, it's, it's the passion you're looking for. And when you get that, then you get really, really good employees.
0: It is nice to create that healing environment that is different. And I would say if you're listening and you you are a provider or your social worker or nurse and, and you're looking for a different way to care for patients in psychiatric crises, um, look up an empath unit in your area and 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 see if they have some openings because... They would love to meet you if you want to contribute to that environment. A couple of last questions. What can the emergency medicine physician learn from this approach?
1: I think the main thing is, is that, um, you know, that these are you know just another kind of emergency condition. That the role of uh, emergency care is not to do a medical clearance and hold for an inpatient bed, but actually to initiate treatment, see what we can do. These people are suffering just as much as anyone else is suffering. Maybe that suffering is not as obvious because they're not actively bleeding. They they don't have a clear cause of pain, but they're they're still suffering nonetheless. And it's it's agonizing, agonizing suffering that the it's the, uh, the psychiatric equivalent of severe pain. And we want to help people that we know that are suffering from pain to relieve that pain as quickly as possible. We want to do that with our psychiatric pain as well. So kicking the can down the road, pushing them into that gurney in the hallway is not making those people any better. It's not helping that suffering. What we can do is immediately address that suffering. And in doing so, a lot of those folks are going to get better and not need to go to that inpatient unit. And whether that's through an empath unit or whether that's doing it uh, in your own ED, you know, what I hear from emergency medicine docs all the time, and it's almost they're kind of embarrassed about it, is they get very, very little education in working with mental health, behavioral emergency patients in their training. And now that it's one in every seven patients they see, that seems a little silly when you think about it. You know, some of them, I've talked to people, their entire program was one lecture, one one-hour lecture per year. That's all they got on behavioral emergencies. Usually it was like, what, what med to give the agitated patient to knock them unconscious? And, and that's all they, got, all they got. And, you know, and, and you know, a lot of emergency medicine docs, it's maybe they think it's a little outside of their uh, interest. But the, the more you teach them, the more that you, you show them, hey, there is a better way. And this is like your head in many ways. It's just like somebody coming in with chest pain or small bowel obstruction or an asthma attack or, you know, lacerations. It just if you think of them that way, And you want to help those people, you can help these people in the same way, just in that kind of quick, early intervention. And even if you're not going to make them better and they still have to go somewhere else afterwards, you're going to relieve that suffering significantly. And you're going to give the people the respect that they deserve because, you know, we don't want to see anybody suffer. And there's different ways that people suffer. And any way we can help them out, it's going to be good. And I've yet to see an emergency medicine doc that doesn't want to see people get better. So maybe they don't understand the cycle so much, the more they learn about it, they they know they want to help.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Scott Zeller. Uh, You've uh, had a profound influence that is being recognized by others. Certainly, Vituity is one of the options if your institution is considering creating one of these type units. We'd love to help you with that. That concludes this episode of Insight. The information shared within this episode was peer-reviewed. And for more information, check the show notes. If you have additional questions, feedback, or to get in touch, please email us at empsych at vituity.com.